This is Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you to understand and speak the language of our culture and to address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Well, listeners, welcome back to another edition of the AC Podcast. This is Andy Steiger, and I am joined here with a, a friend of the show, mm. with Ryan Vandendick. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. It is uh, great to have you with us. Now, Ryan, you are a a video game creator. What? There's got to be a, t- a term for this. Yeah, I would say video game developer. Developer. Okay. So, but but more than that. You are the owner and the founder of Eden Industries, which creates video games. That's right. Yes. And so, how long have you been uh, in the video game industry? About 15 years now. Um, I started in the video game industry and then started my own company about 10 years ago. It is funny. When you came into the studio today, I'm like, I have a million questions for you. And I've had to stop myself at numerous points as, as we've gotten into things. Because I wanted to start the interview before the interview even started. So I, I've been really looking forward to this. So glad that you're with us. You know, last, um, a, a couple podcasts ago, or just Steve and I did a show on the social dilemma. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've still got thoughts, you know, turning in my mind with regards to social dilemma. And then I'm just also just thinking through different aspects of games. And I think that there's, a, you know, we, we did a podcast not too long ago as well, that was really popular amongst parents called Parenting Your Child in the Technological Age. Mm -hmm. And so, it's one of the reasons why I thought it'd be great to have you on the show. I want to talk on, you know, different aspects of what it's like living in a technological age, especially even for yourself being an entrepreneur in a technological Mm -hmm. age and creating video games. Before we get into all that, though, I just, I feel like we got to do some background. Mm -hmm. I've got a variety of different questions I want to throw at you. So let's just start with some really simple stuff here. Eden Industries has created three video games. And from what I understand, you've been pulling some late nights with a fourth video game that's coming out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Three so far, we're working on our fourth now. And late nights are kind of a, a way of life for the video game industry in general. For me, especially because I'm the founder, I guess, you know, the buck stops with me. So definitely put in a lot of time, a lot of effort, but also I love it. I used to work other jobs before I got in the video game industry, or even when I was in the video game industry, I would come home at night and work on my own games. So that level of passion that certainly drives me even beyond necessity in a sense. Where did that passion originate from? Did you grow up playing video games? What is your favorite video game? Do you still play video games? I definitely grew up playing lots of video games. It was born in 85. Even when I was two and three, I remember we had really old bizarre stuff like we had this one system where my mom had to like program in this code to get it to run like it didn't come on cartridges right so she'd have to program it in so that i could play it and yeah you know eventually we got the original nintendo and i played that to death and uh, you know got to the point where you know my mom would buy me a game and within a day or two i had already beaten it and so eventually when i was eight years old my mom said i think even almost as a joke like you know you're so good at playing games maybe you should make them and i thought that's a good idea, mom. So from eight years old, uh, that was my plan. I'm going to make games. And yeah, I played games a ton. I still play them a little bit, but it's hard to make time when I'm making games so much. 
And also sometimes, depending on the game, it can feel a little bit too much like work. So that can be a little tricky too. So that, that's the problem, right? You start doing something you love and what you love starts to become yeah. work. So you've always enjoyed video games. You didn't tell me what your favorite was back in the day. I, I need mm. to know that. <laughs> and what system? Like, oh, man. Okay. What I, was your first system? My very first system was the uh, original Nintendo. We had some other bizarre stuff before that, but the original Nintendo, Nintendo Entertainment System, right, was my first video game console. Did you have a favorite? Uh, I'm going to go really obscure here. If I had to pick one favorite that has, I've played it many times throughout the years, it's going to be on the Super Nintendo, a game called Ogre Battle. It was named after the Queen song, Ogre Battle. And it's very obscure. No one will know what that is. <laughs> but I love it. But you, but you love it. Yeah. Do you have video games on your phone that you play? I don't have any on my phone now. I, I Only one game I liked on my phone was a Pokemon game. It wasn't Pokemon Go. It was another one that I liked a lot. But I got rid of it <laughs> when I started working on our third game. It's too distracting, right? The notifications come up. Oh, there's a new thing. There's a new thing. I was like, I can't handle the nonstop you know, notifications and distractions. I got to get rid of this. But beyond that, I don't really play games on my phone now. Okay. It's interesting. My, my kids love, I have two boys. They mm-hmm. love video games. They're two favorite video games. It's, it's interesting. We bought them a switch. Mm-hmm. They rarely play it. Okay. Yeah. And, and if they do, you know, they'll play something like Pokemon sword or they'll yeah. play something like smash brothers or something like that. Mm-hmm. But they love Brawl Stars, mm. and the newest one that they like is called Among Us. Have you heard of that one? Yeah. Yeah, so they've they've roped me in sure. <laughs> to playing it a couple times, but they don't like me playing Among Us because I'm always the, uh, what do they call that, the imposter? or mm. the, I'm always the one that's going around killing people. Yeah, yeah. They, they don't like it because <laughs> right. they, want, they want to be that guy. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, you know, one of the things that I've had to learn as a parent, now this may sadden you a little bit to hear Mm. but this is uh the truth i've never been really into video games Mm -hmm. i did have an original nintendo Mm -hmm. that was the only video game system i i've ever had in my life and i did enjoy playing super mario brothers yeah yeah right and i did complete it which i was you know i'm proud of that yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) but but yeah it never had a a a lot of appeal to me so it was was interesting with my kids how they really like video games Mm -hmm. So as a dad, I've had to, you know, have these moments mm-hmm. where I've had to like take time to play with my kids. And it's not just video games either. Uh, they like card games too. But, uh, you know, you learn as a parent that you need to engage with where your kids are at, mm-hmm. uh, understand what they're doing, mm-hmm. you know, making sure something is appropriate. But then also having those moments where you can connect with them and, yeah. and play these games. So that that has really gotten me more in the mindset of thinking through what are, you know, appropriate games, what aren't, and what do I want to invest my time into? Now, you're into this like a whole nother level mm-hmm. because as a programmer, you know, you started out working for video game companies, creating video games. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you had to, you know, think through? Okay, you know, the ethics of mm-hmm. which video games w- am I willing to program and not willing to program? Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I started, my first game was Mario Soccer that I, I was a programmer on. So that was easy. There's not really any ethics involved in Mario soccer. That's fine. Uh, second game was a Spider-Man game, which I didn't have a problem with, but I think some people, you know, maybe even that would be too far for them. You're, you know, you're punching bad guys. You know, uh, they don't like that, right? There's some level of violence there. I didn't have a problem with it. But then I went to work at another company 
um, as a designer this time, not, not a programmer. And we were working on a game that was pretty bad. And so it was intentionally very gruesome. It was a very interesting game, but basically, you know, you would have to do things like, you know, ritually sacrifice people to get their blood to do these kind of things. There was a whole thing. They got, you know, motion capture for the animations in the game. And they wanted to have basically a motion capture sex scene. I suppose a guy that has a sex dream or something in the game. So they had actors, you know, simulate this in motion capture. So I was working on this game uh, for about a year. And it really had an impact on me because I was thinking like, you know, that game never came out, which I'm kind of glad about because now my name's not on it, right? But it really made me think like, I don't want to be in this position again. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to make my own company. Like, I want to be the one who decides what games I work on, what the content is, what is appropriate, what I want to have associated with my name, my company. Because, you know, again, I grew up playing games. I like making games that are accessible and playable by everyone. I don't want to have that kind of content. I don't want to have to work on that. So definitely having that experience really affected me in terms of knowing like, yeah, I want to you know be in control and not be beholden to someone telling me what to put in my games. So you're, you're making video games, but you're a Christian. And so mm-hmm. you have to deal with the ethics. Okay, what, what is a right way mm-hmm. to make a video game machine or video game that, that respects my humanity and the mm-hmm. humanity of others, mm-hmm. right? So... Tell me about starting your own company and, you know, what's it like creating a video game? And did you wrestle? How have you wrestled with it? Because I'm sure you have. Uh, because like to kind of give a little more context to this question, I think about the documentary, The Social Dilemma. And creating a video game, you're playing a balancing act between providing a product to a consumer and then at the same time, you want them to come back you know, as a consumer, but you don't want to make mm-hmm. your product addictive Yeah. at the same time. And I'm sure in the social level, you saw that, mm-hmm. you know, this is a real yeah. problem, mm-hmm. just the addiction level. How have you thought mm-hmm. through wrestled, wrestled with that? Yeah, it's difficult in a way because there's a bit of a fine line, right? Between, oh, this thing is a very engaging and fun game to play. And this game is manipulative because it all operates in the same brain chemistry, right? The brain chemistry that says, oh, this is a lot of fun. I'm, I'm getting, you know, pleasure and enjoyment out of this. Uh, there's not a far leap to go from that to this sort of, you know, psychological loop that convinces your brain to, you know, to keep going. You know, one as a maybe famous example is the game um, Civilization. You're familiar with that game. And uh, there's a sort of a famous saying of that game is, oh, j- you know, just one more turn because it's a very addictive game or you're, you're playing and when you finish your turn and then you're like, ah, you know, it's sure it's 2 a.m. But let's play one more game. Wait, one more turn, one more turn, right? But I think there's a little bit of a difference because there's not an incentive necessarily for that company to have you addicted. You've already bought the game, right? That transaction is over until they make the next one, you know, however many years later, there's no incentive to keep you addicted. I think that is, it's maybe a fine line, but I think is sort of the difference because if you look at, you know, certain games, especially, um, you know, free to play games you can get on, you know, phone or, or browser, they have a very strong incentive to make you addicted because they need you to keep looking at ads to keep buying the coins or the gems or whatever it is, right? They keep you hooked. As soon as you stop, that income source is gone. Whereas with games that don't have that element or you look at, you know, movies, books, anything of that sort, once you purchase the product, that's it. By the way, this is something I've had to think about as a parent that now when, if my child is like, oh, I'd like to play this game or whatever, I'm actually much more 
cautious than I used to be because I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that how this worked. I didn't know how effective this was or is. In, in the one of our other shows, I, I really equate it to gambling because mm-hmm. I think we've already know how this works, the psychology right. of this. We've been doing this for a long sure. time, yeah. you know. But, but if you can elicit the same sort of response that, that takes place during gambling, mm-hmm. right, that – you know, that idea, you know, mm-hmm. one more turn. I, yeah. I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, fishing is so much fun, mm-hmm. right? I'm going I'm to throw my line in one more time, mm-hmm. right. right? You know, the thing is, though, is is video games just really take that to yeah. the next level mm-hmm. where you're right. You you know, you could find yourself at 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. going, okay, one more time. So, it means then that we really have to be thinking a lot more about this as a consumer. Should I buy this product or for, as a parent, should I allow my child to play this? And now you're also processing this on on the line of should, should we be making yes. this? So, with regards to like a video game that you're creating, somebody buys it, okay, the transaction's done. But aren't, aren't you noticing that more, more video games are kind of going towards that model of Okay, what sort of add-ons or extra things or characters can people buy that is trying to be a, a continued revenue stream? Yeah, there, there's a lot. And I think there's, you know, there's some good reasons why that's the case. Certainly, the whole culture that's developed around smartphones is a big one right? because you're constantly connected to it. So the idea of something that you can constantly just participate in every once in a while you keep checking it. That's very different than the idea of like, well, I'm going to sit on my couch and play a video game. Your, your, your whole mindset, your whole mode of engagement is very different. So yeah, if you change the whole medium to something where you're, yeah, you check it for a couple of seconds every 10 minutes or you know, however long you, you check your phone, you do have to kind of create a new system for engaging with players for, for running a business. I mean, you have to run a business, right? So in, in some sense, it's understandable, but it does come with some challenges too. I think a lot of our listeners would be interested to know what's it like creating a video game? Like, how do you do that? Where where do you start Mm -hmm. to create a video game? I mean, you first pretty much have to start with some concept of what you want to make, right? Some idea. It can be small. I remember, so for our very first game, it was called Waveform. And the whole idea is you play as just a wave of light moving through space, right? I mean, I know people can't see what I'm doing now, but just, a, you know, and you try to change the amplitude. Ryan is currently moving his arm <laughs> through, through the air. Yeah, in a sinusoidal <laughs> motion. Um, and you change the amplitude and wavelength of this wave and you, and you move. And that's it. That was just, I had an idea. I wanted to make a game that was kind of simple. And I just, I used to do one kind of simple thing and that was it. So I had an idea. What if you, I like math. I like sine waves. Like, well, what if you just can manipulate a wave? And I had the idea. And so that seemed interesting to me. I spent a couple of evenings just put something rough together unbeknownst to me the sort of a guy a friend of mine played it with i didn't realize he was going to grab it and he's like oh this is really fun and i was like i think i got something here then right so it came just from a very simple idea um and just you know sort of a very rough prototype and our 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 second game is game called citizens well let me me ask a follow-up question on that so then when you create something like that do you self-fund that or do you try to pitch that to others to fund it yeah, that one I self-funded. I knew for a long time I wanted to make games. I was sort of figuring I wanted to make my own company, so I was sort of saving uh, money from from you know from my day job making games so that I could make my own. Uh, so that one I self-funded and self-published, and you know did it all all myself. Yeah, but um, for our other games, uh, yeah, we've had publishers to help with financing. Well, that's interesting to self-publish a video game where cannot be played on any platform. Like how, how does that work? Mm. I mean, that, that's a whole other world. Yeah. So uh, that one, when it came out, you could play it on PC, uh, Mac, Linux. Uh, later, we did a mobile version. 
as time has gone on, it's become easier and easier to self-publish on a lot of platforms, but it was hard even back then. So even though, for example, I was making games, essentially for Nintendo, I, at the time I was working on, I think like Luigi's Mansion on the DS or something, and we're working in this waveform on the side, uh, I, I said to Nintendo, hey, I'd like to release it on, at the time it was Nintendo Wii on their you know, d- digital store. And they said, well, you know, we don't think you have enough experience as a programmer. I'm like, I am programming games for you right now. <laughs> right. Um, and then they're like, okay, well, fine, but we don't think your office is very secure because I, I knew I had to get an office. I rented this you know, small office just for the purpose of like applying to Nintendo. It's like, oh, we don't think it's secure. Send us pictures, send us more pictures. And eventually they rejected. So they said, you cannot release a game for the Nintendo Wii. So, I mean, since then, they, they've relaxed a lot of these regulations. They don't really care so much anymore. But, but back then, they were much more concerned about it. So we published it just for um, yeah, PC, Mac, Linux, and, and mobile. So then uh, what was the next? You were going to say the next game? Yeah, so the game. second game was called Citizens of Earth. And so the idea with this one was I just had this idea of like, well, you play a lot of video games and you always play as the hero. Like, I'm the chosen one. I'm this powerful warrior. And I thought... Well, it's kind of weird. You know, the world is coming to a cataclysmic end and everyone's just like, well, I don't know. I'm just going to go about my business. And I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. If the world was coming to an end, everyone should do what they can. So I thought, what about if there was a game where regular people were just the heroes? So we made a game where, um, you know, the town baker, the school teacher, the lifeguard, they're the heroes of the story. And you play as the vice president of Earth and you recruit them and you save the day. And so again, this just came from just a very simple idea. What about a game that looked kind of like that? And so they just sat down and started programming it. When you say you sat down and started programming it, what kind of program are you are you working with? Yeah, so um, I I read all my art code from scratch, right? So these days, you, you know, you can kind of buy a game engine and kind of, you know, move pieces around to make a game. But I, yeah, write all our code from scratch in a programming language called C++. You're creating everything R- yes. from scratch. That's right. Yeah, creating everything from scratch. Yeah, that's right. Okay. If you're going to create everything from scratch... What's the first thing that you have to do? It looks very daunting if you look at a game and say like, yeah, how on earth could I start making this? But if you start breaking it down, I mean, this is sort of the whole discipline of computer science and and programming, right? So you say, well, I'm going to need a way to draw like a box on the screen, draw a square, like get some image on the screen. So, okay, first, that's all I'm going to do is just draw a white square. Well, now I'm going to need some way for the player to interact with the game. So maybe if I, you know, press the arrow keys, the square can move. Okay, well, that's not too bad. And now maybe if, if a square moves, I should play a sound effect. Okay, so now you press a button and the square goes boop, 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 right? But now you can start to see, you're, now you're adding components into it. Now you can just make it a little more complex, a little more complex. You add this system in. You know, now instead of a white box, it's got a, a texture on it, right? Now it looks like a, a crate, you know, whatever it is. So you just add it just piece by piece, right? So you just start start small. I mean, it's, it's almost like building anything, right? Like if you look at a, a house, you don't just imagine, well, I'm just going to plop a house here. Well, first, you know, you, you lay the foundation, right? Then you, you know, it's just kind of this, the same way. You just build it little piece by piece, start with the basics and just keep adding bits and bits and bits until you get something big. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi listeners, this is Andy Steiger. I'm excited to report that we are over 25% of our double your impact goal. An anonymous donor is matching all donations to Apologetics Canada until December 31st, up to $100,000. If you appreciate this ministry, we ask that you join us and support our work. Your donation will go twice as far. Please visit our website, ApologeticsCanada.com, to donate. And now, back to the podcast. This is something interesting that where you and I have talked in the past about 
artificial intelligence. Because I've always found it fascinating when I talk with people who know coding and who are actively involved in coding, there is a completely different appreciation for AI mm-hmm. when people pop the hood and see and know what's going on mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. Because there's other people that just anthropomorphize it. And yes, they want to yes. they want to put humanistic characteristics to what's taking place, mm-hmm. but I find with coders they don't do that. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't have that kind of futurist view of things <laughs> right. where they where yeah. they kind of see it doing things that it's actually not doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there moments where you're just like, oh come on, please? Oh, all the time. <laughs> Almost any time I hear anyone talking about AI, I just shake my head. It's, it's it's very sensational when you hear people talk about it. Yeah, even people like should know better. I think I mentioned you know like Elon Musk, a brilliant guy. But the way he talks about AI is very strange to me. Yeah, it's funny you say that. You know, they should know better. Like, yeah. I- explain to me, though, for you, how do you view machine learning, AI, these yeah. sorts of things? Yeah, well, you know, so fundamentally, right, like all programming, when you break it down, it's mathematics, right? At, at its core, it is mathematics. Everything you can do with programming uh, must follow the laws of mathematics. And in fact, with our current model of computation, right? which is all of our computers, right? You're in fact limited to what, you know, we call it a Turing machine, which um, of course, if, if anyone's seen, uh, you know, the, the imitation game movie, right? They might be familiar. I know that movie. I'm upset about that movie just for the simple <laughs> fact that it's called the imitation game, yet it has nothing that's to do right, with yeah. Turing's <laughs> imitation that, that, yeah, game. Yeah, that, that's very true. <laughs> um, but you get the sense that, you know, he created this, I mean, now we would view as a very, very primitive machine, but in fact, has the same computational ability as anything we've developed now. It would take a lot longer to do it. But but he came up with the basics of computer science. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so really, uh, what a computer is fundamentally, this a Turing machine idea, abstraction, is just you have a long piece of paper and maybe divide it into like cells, right? Squares. And you can write values in it and erase them. Is really, that is a Turing machine. And that really is all a computer can do. A long piece of paper, write values, you know, move a value over here, you know, you do some math on it, erase it. You write a one in this square, a two in that square, add and write a three in that square. That's it. That is all a computer can do, which is strange when we see all the computers can do in our world today. But fundamentally, they're limited to that style of computation. And so AI is not any different. It's figured out some very clever ways of using that paper in those boxes, but it's still has the same fundamental limitation of all computers. You know, going back again from the very first one by Alan Turing all the way to now, they have the exact same limitations. They're still bound by the laws and rules of mathematics. There's so much to to say about that because I, I, one of the things I find so fascinating, you know, one of the rules of mathematics that they're bound by are things like they're not complete systems in and of themselves. They mm-hmm. they require outside influence. Mm-hmm. You know, math doesn't do math, right? People do math, but you need to set those values for those systems to work. Would you say, though, like when we're talking about machine learning, really, we're talking about math here, but we're talking about statistics? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Statistics is basically what you're what you're going for, right? You're finding the most optimal solution statistically given a certain data set. Uh, one of the things I didn't know that I would be getting into in my doctoral work was AI, but Interestingly enough, you know, before World War II, Michael Polanyi, who I did my doctoral work on, was working in Berlin. 
And given the anti-Semitism that, that occurred when Hitler came to power, he had to flee and he went to the UK and began working at Manchester University, mm-hmm. where, as you know, Alan Turing mm-hmm. was working at Manchester. Those two began to connect and began dialoguing together about machines and what machines could potentially be capable of. And it might be interesting for listeners to know that it was actually Michael Polanyi talking with Alan Turing and him encouraging Turing to publish mm. on these subjects, because Turing wasn't at the time, mm. that then Polanyi organized an interdisciplinary dialogue with a number of people, including Polanyi and Turing, in which they asked the question whether or not a machine could think. Mm-hmm. It's always been fascinating to me, you know, with regards to creating machines, it always goes towards this anthropomorphized or humanistic android understanding of a machine. And you see that from its very earliest days with Turing and and that discussion that was taking place. And then ultimately, it was a year later uh, after that dialogue that then Turing published his famous paper in which he talked about the imitation game and really set the course for computer science with regards to this idea of mimicking a human and whatnot, passing the Turing test. So, it's interesting to me how often you you see those things interconnected. And I think that we've got to be careful that we understand these things correctly because in, in a world that embraces, you know, as humans, we just embrace anthropomorphization so oh, yes. quickly. Mm-hmm. I really believe it can lead to dangerous understandings of mm-hmm. computer science. Yeah. Yeah, I think absolutely. And, Part of the problem, too, is that when we say, oh, can machines think? Well, that depends a lot on what you define think as, doesn't it? If you define think as very quickly process large amounts of data, well, sure, then by that definition, they can think. If you mean act in any way that is not a deterministic result of the nature of their being, well, then no, they can't. It really comes down to, yeah, how are you defining this word and what do you mean by think? It's something that I've been thinking about for the last five years, sure. no pun intended, yeah. uh, because interestingly enough, Polanyi, in response to Turing, came up with this idea of something he calls tacit knowledge, in which he argues, or at the time, it, he argued that, well, humans can do something that machines can't. And specifically, he talked about, he distinguishes between explicit knowledge, in which he argues that humans can do these tacit things such as riding a bike or playing a game of chess or diagnosing a disease. Mm -hmm. Now, I use those examples, which are directly from (laughs) Polanyi, but we know Mm -hmm. those have all been demonstrated to be false. that's right. Right? Machines have demonstrated all three of those. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got machines that can ride bikes. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got machines that can not only play chess, but is interestingly enough, in Turing's original paper, Mm -hmm. he brings up not just chess, but he brings up the game Go. Right. Which, again, that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, uh, with these AI algorithms, mm-hmm. they wanted to master chess and yeah. and go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Turing specified those in his right. paper. Yeah. And they're complicated. Yes. You know, really complicated. Go, especially. Yeah, go, especially. And what we've seen is that they can yes. do the, what again, what I'm calling tacit algorithms. They mm-hmm. can do these tacit things. And, and by the way, even recently... Uh, machine learning has been able to diagnose skin cancer yes. uh, on par with a, a dermatologist, mm-hmm. which again, 
This is something where I think we really have to rethink the way that we distinguish between a machine and a human, because I think for many years we've bought into this human exceptionalism, where we wanted to distinguish between the two by saying, oh, humans are exceptional at, I don't know, doing these tacit things, uh, riding a bike or playing a game of chess or, you know, the brain is really smart, you know, and then that's why a machine and a human are different. And he's like, oh, <laughs> that actually raises some real problems. Yeah. I, th I think for me, what it comes down to is like AI can play chess and it can play Go, but it cannot decide that it wants to stop playing chess and decide to play Go. Or here's um, another yeah. one. It doesn't know. And this is where I make a distinction between weak tacit knowledge and strong tacit knowledge. Because you're getting at what I would call strong tacit knowledge, such as winning a game. It doesn't know the experience of winning a game or of losing a game. That's right. Yeah. And I think, you know, you could program an AI to randomly choose whether it wants to play chess or go. But again, right, this, it really doesn't change the fundamental thing, which is that it cannot break free of what it is deterministically programmed to do. Now, I suppose... Now, can, can we just take that a step sure, further? Because yeah. I think this is interesting. Because we could add to that another layer where we could, where we could program the game to mimic the behavior of a human winning or losing a game. Uh, Right, but again, you 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 have to begin to ask. Okay, then, uh, is is that our understanding then of a human is just is just behaviorism? Mm -hmm. One interesting thing you could say, because if you kind of bring this to its natural conclusion, you might say, well, we want to not just imitate a human. We're going to actually, you know, build some kind of biological type computer, and we will mimic, we will recreate the brain through this biological computer, and then it will feel the excitement of winning or losing. But then I wonder, well, we can already do that. It's called having children. <laughs> so, you know, now it will almost come full circle. And, I, and again, I wonder like, well, what exactly are you creating? What do, and what do you think you're creating? Uh, uh, absolutely. And it's interesting. I'll, I'm going to be bringing this out in the next month or two. I'm, I'm working on an argument that I uh, will be publishing. Uh, I'm going to, publish it into a journal, but then I want to, I want to publish it just as a, probably as a video or something, but I just want to make this basic distinction that even if you could get a machine to mimic consciousness or even be conscious, I, I'd be okay to grant that, that you still don't have a human being, that you still have something that was ontologically created by a human and designed for a specific purpose. And, and so that's one of the reasons why I define a machine that could, say, pass a Turing test. We haven't had that happen yet, but or at least not an accurate. Uh, my point being that the way that I define a machine that could pass the Turing test uh, is just a human mimicking machine. That's what you've created. Yeah, I agree. And I think another thing that is really relevant to the conversation is do we perceive that humans have free will or not? Because some people actually perceive that humans do not have free will. And if someone who did believe that, then I think it is also correct to say that, in fact, there is no difference between humans and AI. See, and this is such a great point because I think there's a lot of people maybe who are listening to the show going, well, what do computer games and AI have to do with apologetics? Well, they have everything to do with apologetics in today's day and age mm -hmm. in, in a culture that is being driven by technology in which I would argue, I'm curious what you would say to this. Uh, I would argue that technology has become the religion of the 21st century. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, technology maybe combined with science, right? Scientism. Right. I, I guess to be more specific, because I, I don't want to demonize technology. Uh, no, no, I, I, love, I love it. Exactly. I, I, I do it for a living. <laughs> right. And, and, yeah. I, and, and I love it as mm-hmm. well. And so you're absolutely right. To be more specific, we're talking about a certain understanding and application mm-hmm. of technology. But that's what we're getting to. Right. Is what's the foundation from which you're doing computer science mm-hmm. or the foundation from which you're doing science? Because mm-hmm. that will dictate the sorts of of direction yes. that you're going to go and the sort of results that, that you think are, are achievable. Yeah, I have some, this sort of analogy, I like to think of it. Um, I think the idea of a video game developer is a little bit different from other programming because I do create worlds and I create environments, right? The natural world, quote unquote natural in a digital game, but in the natural world, I create people, characters that have behaviors desires, at least as the word is used in AI lingo, right? Like things it's trying to achieve within the game. And I not only play the game and defeat these beings, I'm sort of killing, quote unquote, some AI creation, but I do more than that. In fact, I will say, you know what? I'm going to delete the code that spawned this AI. So I'm not just killing an AI. I am removing its essence. I'm well, the analogy is I'm sending it to hell. I, you know, I mean, like I'm eliminating any trace that it ever existed. Now, does that make me a mass murderer? Well, I think not. I don't think anyone would say it is, but you get into some real tricky logical conundrums if you perceive that AI has humanity and I'm sitting at my desk all day creating and destroying <laughs> right AI like I'm a serial killer. That's such a that's such a good point. This is the, I think this is an issue of the 21st century that we really have to grapple with where computer science is being blurred with reality. Mm-hmm. And particularly humanity. Mm -hmm. And people don't think through the implications of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And that's why I get so annoyed when I'll see like Sophia being granted citizenship (laughs) to Saudi Arabia. And I think it's not going to be long till we see a computer being granted citizenship to the human race. And people haven't thought through the implications Mm -hmm. of what does that actually mean? Mm -hmm. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, there really is not that much of a leap between an AI being a citizen and me being arrested for deleting an AI. You know, Sophia, if someone were to delete her programming, would they go to jail? Probably they essentially killed a citizen, right? And so it really is, to me, a very yeah, dangerous thing to not think through where that could go. You know, this, this is the challenge is, is that people think, you know, that, that they're granting humanity to the machine what they don't realize is that they're doing the exact opposite. They're, they're making a human into a machine. And, and in doing so, they, they're really uh, losing sight of their humanity and the humanity of others. And I think this is going to be something as Christians, and this is in an area, an important area of apologetics that we've really got to hone in on on the 21st century. It's one of the reasons why on the AC podcast we talk about this so much, is that this is an issue that that the church and that Christians really need to understand now because the technology behind all this is moving so quickly. And here's the thing. I'm curious your thoughts on this. Let me just lay it out for you. We often think about the kind of the matrix or terminator idea of AI, right? That it's going to become conscious and that it's going to destroy us. Whereas I would argue that the exact opposite is going to happen. We're going to grant 
humanity to the machines. And in the process, we're going to dehumanize ourselves and lose our own humanity. I, I see that that's where the true danger mm-hmm. of the future could be. Yeah, I, I see the future more like, you know, the uh, movie WALL-E? Yeah. Where they're all doing nothing, floating in space. That, to me, feels more realistic than, than Terminator, right? Just the idea that we've given so much power to machines, we don't need to do anything anymore. Mm. Um, that's an, I, th- I would argue that that's another aspect of dehumanization. It, oh, it is, yeah. yeah. Um, where, I, where we farmed out, you know, our humanity to machines. That's right, yeah. At, at, at its most fundamental levels, yeah. you know, whether that be... Because this was something that has always amused me is when mm-hmm. uh, Japan, not that long ago, thought they came up with this great idea where they thought was a great idea was to automate childcare. Oh. It, you know, because that was going to make, you know, having a child so much more affordable. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's just a palm to the face yeah. moment where you're like, <laughs> yeah. you know, that that is not good. Mm-hmm. That is not going to lead to good places. But yeah, you kind of get this Wally idea where you just farmed out every aspect of your humanity and you just wonder, okay, what's, the, what's even left? That's right. Yeah. And I think too, one thing that I think people, I mean, forget about it, is like, it's not hard right now. Someone could program an AI to kill people. That's very, very easy. I mean, we have drones and things like, you know, like, so I'm not quite exactly sure what they think that is going to happen to create this Terminator-esque scenario other than, you know, someone programming a machine to take over the world. Like, we could already do that if we wanted. I don't think it's this weird apocalyptic idea of like, somehow, some way machines are going to, you know, take over. Like, if anything, someone is just some rogue agent is just going to be like, yeah, I'm going to program a robot to kill people. We can already do that. So it's, yeah. This is an interesting idea where, you know, and this could be a discussion for a whole nother podcast where the idea of video games is really taking place more now in the real world. But that's one of those aspects where you're like, okay, the real world starts to feel a whole lot more like a machine where people are either coding machines to do certain things or the that there is a person behind the machine doing it. And you could imagine that this would be even how wars would be fought in the future. And this is not a unique philosophical idea either, right? It's like, at what level is reality taking place too, right? I mean, this is sort of Descartes' famous idea, right? I mean, who's to say that the video game I make is less real than what we're living now? Who's to say the AI in that game is less valuable than, than the, you know, maybe I'm somehow gifted. I can make AI in my game more valuable than the humans in our world who's to define that, right? Like you do need to have a very cogent and foundational set of values and belief system to explain why that's not the case, right? And if you, if you have a very, you know, wishy-washy kind of understanding of what human is, of what reality is, of what truth is, you will not have a cogent ability to understand and distinguish the difference between those two things. 100% agree with you. Again, it's one of the reasons why I think it's important that we talk about these these issues, that we understand them. And uh, I, again, I think it would surprise people just to continue to see how faith intersects with the reality we find ourselves even in the 21st century and having a, a good grasp of these things. This is one of the reasons why I'm a Christian. It's from the Christian perspective that I do have a solid framework to be able to understand these things and that continues to encourage me. Listeners, I hope that you've been encouraged as we have talked on all sorts of stuff on the show today. Video games, AI, Terminator, all of it. Uh, We will uh, come back next week with more things to think about. Until then, don't play too many video games. (laughs) 